Well, this week I spent a couple of days in Washington, D.C. at a two-day gathering for United Methodist leaders um, from several different parts of the country. We were there for a training with the General Board of Church and Society, which is one of our international program boards, and the role of this one is to engage local faith communities and people of faith in the work of advocating for justice in places of poverty and hunger and violence and war and all the rest. So <clears throat> the General Board of Church and Society is located in this building, the United Methodist Building. Isn't that a catchy name? The United <laughs> Methodist Building. It's the only non-government building located on Capitol Hill. If you walk out these front doors, to your left, you see the Supreme Court building, immediately. And sort of straight ahead and slightly to the right is the United States Capitol, with the, I mean, just right around the corner. Charlotte Hendy, who's one of our retired pastors, used to work for the General Board of Church and Society in that building, I presume? Yes. On the third floor. On the third floor. <laughs> so I wanted to tell you a little bit about this building, because it is a place that holds a rich history um, particularly demonstrating our United Methodist presence in the midst of um, so much work of advocacy for peace and justice. Um, <clears throat> this building was built in 1923. The first Protestant denomination to have a presence to locate one of its major um, agencies in Washington, D.C. And, of course, the first to have a presence on Capitol Hill because it's still today the only non-government building on Capitol Hill. Today, though, many denominations have a presence on Capitol Hill because we rent offices to many of the other Protestant denominations so they can have a presence on Capitol Hill. Anyone want to guess what the issue that, that Methodists, because we, we were united but not called United Methodists at the time, in 1923, what was it that prompted Methodists to build a building and have a, have a presence on Capitol Hill? Any guesses? Prohibition, which was a big issue, and Methodists are involved in that primarily because addiction and abuse were so closely tied together, so closely tied together. So it was a justice issue, primarily around the care of women and children. So the interesting fact is, prohibition went into effect before the building was finished. So the Methodists had to sort of scramble around and say, okay, so what are we going to, if prohibition isn't our concern, um, of course, there were many other concerns. Of particular note, United Methodists have always had a strong position against gambling. Why against gambling? Well, it leaves the resources, the provision that God gives us. Waste of resources, the resources, like bad stewardship, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. people, people will gamble away the money and they won't have it. Children. Right, exactly. Put shoes on their feet. It becomes addictive. It becomes addictive. It's a, and it's a tax on the poor, right? Those who, who primarily spend a lot of money in gambling are already people who live in poverty, have no hope, and think that's their hope. But over the years, this has been the site of some incredible work. <clears throat> um, the ecumenical office where Martin Luther King organized for his march on Washington. We like to claim that, although apparently it was a, just a little tiny cubby hole somewhere. <laughs> but that's where some of the work organizing the March on Washington happened. Um, in the women's rights movements, in efforts for peace during the days of Vietnam War protests. 
<clears throat> in the organization of some of the early Earth Day celebrations. The Americans with Disabilities Act was hammered out in this building. So a coalition of government and nonprofit and faith community leaders met in this building for over a year, hammering out the language of the Americans with Disabilities Act. These are things we can be very proud of. Um, and so within the walls of this building, people have gathered over the decades to fight poverty, to promote peace, to organize rallies, to advocate for the rights of workers and children and Native Americans, and on and on. United Methodists, you have always understood that you really can't separate religion and politics, even though there's this really strong push to keep religion and politics separate, right? You can't separate them, because if we take seriously our faith, and try to live an integrated faith that's putting faith into action, it's going to involve us in the political process. So that's what we've been exploring over the last several weeks. Today we're concluding this series. We have explored war and peace. Last week, Charlotte and Sam gave us a lot to think about, and I thought did a wonderful job of helping us think through issues related to same-sex marriage. And today we're going to be focusing on um, wealth and poverty, and economic justice. So, I'm going to skip over that. That's that Oscar Romero quote that we had a couple of weeks ago. And jump right into some words from scripture from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. It was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and legal experts, through cunning tricks, were searching for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But they agreed that it shouldn't happen during the festival. Otherwise, there would be an uproar among the people. I think this is fascinating. They wanted to arrest and kill Jesus, but they wanted to do it quietly when nobody would sort of, when the people wouldn't be gathered. They didn't want to protest, right? They wanted to do it when there wasn't going to, when they could make sure that there wasn't going to be a movement against them. Flag that. That's kind of important. Jesus was at Bethany, visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease. What skin disease, presumably? Leprosy. So what do you know about leprosy in the days of Jesus? It's incurable. Incurable, yes. Today it's very curable, but in that day... People were shunned. Completely shunned. So when you hear leprosy, I want you to think about AIDS in the early days of AIDS. When there was such stigma, such stigma... And really irrational fear. We know today that you cannot catch leprosy by touching someone with leprosy. But if you had leprosy, as Charlotte said, you were shunned. You had to leave your home, leave your community, live on the outskirts of town in the area of the town dump. In some places, you actually had to wear a bell around your neck so that people could hear you coming and get away from you. I mean, this was the kind of irrational fear that people had around leprosy. So it's very significant that Jesus is in the house of Simon, who has leprosy, right? And when we, read, when we read on, we find out that Jesus was having dinner with him. Jesus ate with the outcasts of the outcasts. That's significant. During dinner, a woman came in with a, with a vase made of alabaster and containing very expensive perfume of pure nard. Do you remember what she did with it? Yeah. What'd she do? 
In this gospel, she anoints his head. In another gospel, she anoints his feet. She did one or the other, or maybe both, right? Right. She broke open the vase and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some grew angry. They said to each other, why waste the perfume? This perfume could have been sold for almost a year's pay and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, in, in another gospel, um, the author goes on to say, well, they didn't really care about the poor. They just wanted to sell the perfume and pocket it. But Mark doesn't tell us that part, so we'll just take this at face value, that they really were concerned about the poor, right? So how does Jesus respond? Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do something good for them. But you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body ahead of time for my burial. I tell you the truth, that wherever the whole world, wherever in the whole world the good news is announced, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this might seem like a strange passage to share on a Sunday when we're talking about poverty and wealth and economic justice. There are so many passages in the Old and New Testaments that speak very directly about the responsibility of people of faith who care for those who live in poverty. So why this one? I chose this passage because I think this is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. So I told you a couple weeks ago that I've been rereading this book, God's Politics, by Jim Wallace, obviously the inspiration for the title of this worship series. Jim Wallace is the executive director of a Washington, D.C.-based group called Sojourners that publishes a wonderful magazine called Sojourners, and that really works to mobilize people of faith in issues of social justice. So he and other commentators have flagged this passage as a an often misunderstood passage. What does Jesus say when uh, the people are criticizing this woman's actions in um, anointing Jesus with this expensive oil? They say, ah, oh, she could have sold it and given money to the poor. And what does Jesus say about the poor in this passage? Do you remember? You'll always, you'll always be with them. You'll always be with the poor. So when we hear that, what we often do is we read it in this very fatalistic way. Oh, you're always going to have the poor. There's nothing you can do about that. You might as well just throw up your hands and just accept that that's part of the reality of the world. There's always going to be poverty, right? When what Jim Wallace and other commentators suggest is that's the exact opposite of what Jesus meant. What Jesus was saying was, you will always be with the poor. If you are truly my follower, that's always going to lead you to be in solidarity with the poor. This is about proximity. It's as if Jesus is saying, um, because you are my disciples, because you're striving to follow my teaching and my example, you will always be with the poor. You know who we spend our time with. You know who we eat with. You know where we focus our attention and energy and priorities with the poor. You know to whom the kingdom of God comes first. So you will always be 
with the poor, and you'll always have opportunities to help them. Do you see the difference there? There's like miles difference between the way we try to read that and what Jesus is talking about. And it's significant that Jesus is eating dinner with someone with leprosy when he says this. He's not talking about distancing from pain and poverty. He's talking about being in solidarity with, being present with all the time. So Jim Wallace calls this social location. Jesus is identifying our social location is with those who live in poverty. And he says that our social location always impacts our reading of scripture. So it really depends on what lens you're looking through, what you find in scripture. We know that's true, don't we? The perspective that we bring to scripture impacts the way we hear it. So here's what... Um, so, there are several thousand verses in the Bible that talk about issues of poverty, wealth, money, and material possessions. Several thousand passages. One source I read this week claims that this is the second most prominent theme in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Second only to idolatry. And guess what? Money and idolatry usually go hand in hand. They do. Because we, we, we idolize money. We worship our possessions. You could say this is the most popular theme, right? If you think of it that way. Um, in the New Testament, one in 16 verses is related to issues of wealth, poverty, material possessions, or money. One in 16 verses. In the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, it's one verse in ten. And in the Gospel of Luke, one verse in seven about wealth, poverty, material possessions, or money. So Jim Wallace talks about how in his first year of seminary, he and some friends got together and they were reflecting on, on how prevalent this theme is in scripture and how little the church engages it. So they decided to take up a little experiment. Here's what they did. They took a Bible and they decided over the course of several weeks to go through verse by verse to pick out every verse that's talking about wealth, poverty, money, or material possessions. And whenever they would find one, they would literally cut it out. They took a pair of scissors and they started cutting out every verse that had to do with money, material possessions, wealth, or poverty. And what do you think happened? Bible in shreds. <laughs> the Bible in shreds. It literally fell apart. It literally fell apart. And he talks about how he still has this Bible, which is not much of a Bible at all, really. It's just it's a, it's falling apart. A Bible full of holes. And he sometimes takes it when he's preaching and he holds it up and he says, Americans read a Bible full of holes. We read a Bible full of holes. He goes on to describe kind of his experience of the church growing up in his home church. And he says, I learned in my little home church that people can really love the Bible, believe they are basing their lives upon it, and yet completely miss some of its most central themes. Think about that for a second. Completely miss 
some of its most central themes. We don't see what would most challenge us and perhaps change our lives. Do you think that's true? We don't see what would most challenge us and perhaps force us to change our lives, change our priorities, change our perspective. And I think this is one of the topics that we most choose to ignore. So, poverty and wealth. The latest statistics say that 47 million Americans live in poverty. 47 million Americans. One in five American children is poor. And the definition of poverty that we're working with for those statistics is lacking the resources to meet the basic needs for healthy living, having insufficient income to provide the food shelter, and clothing needed to preserve health. Is it okay that one in five children in the United States of America lives in poverty? Is that okay? And Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's true that the, the dollar definition of poverty, like what is the actual threshold for poverty, has not changed in like 40 years. Is that right? Yes, it's 1967 or something. Think it's about that. The definition of poverty, what constitutes poverty, has not changed in 40 years. What's happened to the cost of living in 40 years? Yeah. So, we have a problem. Meanwhile, the wealthiest 10% of Americans hold something like 75% of the wealth. So, I want to show you a couple of maps here. This is a map showing the percentage of people living in poverty. In the 9 o'clock service, we had a little debate over whether Maine was in the 12 to 15 or 15 to 18 percent, but I think it's 12 to 15. 12 to 15 percent of people living in poverty. Now, the problem with a map that takes states like this is that from Caribou to Portland, there's a big difference in cost of living, right? Yeah. And that's true of most of these states. So these are averages. These are averages. Look at some, look, just take a minute and study the map and look at where some of the highest concentrations of poverty lie. And Alan, I think that Washington Washington County, which would be up here. At least in the top three. Yeah, I think you're right. And that doesn't show up because we're taking state averages, right? Any other observations when you look at this map? Yeah, so New Hampshire's, New Hampshire's in this... This is Vermont over here. Vermont. So both New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts are doing better than Maine. In Connecticut. In Connecticut. Yeah. So, what if we thought of this image as an image for our prayer today? We pray this image. Sometimes I think we think of prayer and we think of words, but I like the idea of the image that we lift up in prayer. This might be an image. Or this one. U.S. Wealth Distribution. The wealthiest 20% of Americans own almost 85% of the wealth. Well, that's alarming, but so are these little slices of pie here. Like the poorest 20% that don't, you can't even see that because it's one-tenth of 1%. The same number of people, 20%, 20%, own one-tenth of 1%, own 84.6% of the wealth. 
and then on up the working poor, two-tenths of 1%. Middle America, and then upper class. Another image for our prayer, right? And all of us fall somewhere in there. I'm guessing that none of us are yellow. Some of us in this room today are in this poorest 20%, guaranteed. And some of us are in this little white sliver. And a lot of us are probably somewhere in here. When you see it like that, it really makes it pretty uh, blatant, doesn't it? Do you think that these things should matter to followers of Jesus? Yeah, right? We can call it a political issue, wealth and poverty. It's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual, religious issue. And it's an issue that God calls us to address. One of the most alarming things about both of these maps is that the poverty is increasing. It's not decreasing. And the gap between the rich and the poor is increasing. It's not decreasing. Right? Even in the worst days of the last recession, while most people were struggling more and more and more, the wealthiest got wealthier. This is the reality. Can I make a comment yes, about please. the map again? That this was one? stunning to me. Yeah, yeah, the only three states that are in the lowest range are in New England. Interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. What does that say? <laughs> I mean, we don't want to draw the conclusions, but yeah. <clears throat> Really interesting. Jesus said, whatever you did for the one who is suffering, the hungry, the poor, the sick, the person in prison, the one without clothing or a roof over his or her head, you did that for me, right? And Jesus said, whatever you didn't do for the one who is suffering, you finish it. You didn't do it for me. Well, that ought to stop us in our tracks a little bit. Why should it stop us in our tracks anymore, though, to say that we did or didn't do it for Jesus than that we did or didn't do it for our brother or sister? It's the same thing. Is it any better or any worse that we did or didn't do it for Jesus? You know what I'm saying? A brother or sister is a brother or a sister. Or do we want to just cut that one out of, out of our Bible, too, along with all the rest? I mean, these are the things we have to wrestle with. So it's very important that we do what we can to care for those who live in poverty. It is great that we serve 600 meals a month in this room. Something like 14,000 meals in the two years we've been doing this, on this little shoestring project kind of thing in partnership with Wayside Food Programs. It's great, and it's great that some of you volunteer at the Sacred Heart Food Pantry and you give out food every single week. Those things are needed, but that's not enough, is it? We also have to be asking, why is it that in the wealthiest country in the world there is so much poverty? And what needs to change? What needs to change systemically so that people who live in poverty can have hope? It's a both and. Sometimes we put those two against each other. It's always both and. If somebody's hungry, it's not enough to say, well, I'm really sorry you're hungry today, but I'm really working to change some laws here. So five years from now, you should be all set. That's not enough. 
But it's also not enough to say, well, you just keep coming back here, because we'll just keep doing this more and more, and we'll just keep growing this. You know, it's, it's got to be both and. Mercy ministries, that's the feeding hungry people, and then justice, that's changing systems that leave people in poverty. Just a quick story. Yeah. Um, I used to work for the state as a social worker doing outreach with the homeless, and there was an exchange student from Haiti at USM social work program working on his master's degree. He was here for a year, and he was doing his internship with the state, and he was told to shadow me for a couple of weeks. And it was very interesting. All the courses I had, everything I saw every day, was nothing compared to what he saw. Mm -hmm. And we drove around town and looked at all the places and, and, and went to the shelter, and, and he was appalled mm -hmm. on two counts. One is, is you're the wealthiest na nation in the world. Mm -hmm. How could you have this? Right. And then secondly, where are these people's families? Mm -hmm. Because in Haiti, we would let anybody sleep outside. Mm -hmm. Whether they're even a, a, a relative, everybody's considered a neighbor, everybody gets taken care of. And it was a total. We spent hours talking about this. I can't explain why we're. Right. How do you explain that? We are. Right. I cannot explain it. Right. But, but it was just so stark. Sure. What he witnessed, what he saw from his eyes. Right. Thank you. That's a great story. So most Americans think that if you work full time, you should not be poor, right? And we say, well, if somebody's poor, it's because they're not working. They're lazy. Here's another image for your prayer life. This is the number of hours needed to work at minimum wage to afford an apartment. Just look at this map. Do you see any states where you can work 40 hours a week and afford an apartment? Not a single one. In Maine, we're better than in most states. In Maine, you can work 81 hours at minimum wage and afford an apartment. Now remember, again, that's an average. Caribou, Portland. I'm guessing in Portland, without subsidized housing, you would have to work way more than 81 hours at minimum wage to afford an apartment. I'm guessing. We, and then, we, we calculated that at the shelter. Minimum wage, and this is like five, six years ago. Yep. The minimum wage, you would have to work a full-time job and a part-time job. You'd have to work 60 hours a week mm -hmm. to afford an apartment. Sure. And this says 81 for Maine, but look at New York. 136 hours. Yeah. And I'm guessing New York City and upstate New York, very different. This is the average. Look at California, 130 hours. And they're spread out all over from there. It is a myth that if you work full time, you should not be poor. That is a myth. These are issues that as people of faith, we need to wrestle with. So one of the things that Jim Wallace from Sojourners says it's kind of become his tagline that's quoted often in lots of places. He says, a budget is a moral document. What does that statement mean to you? A budget is a moral document. The money you spend looking at your budget ought to, it does, whether we want it or not, reflect your priorities, right? Somebody else is going to say something. Right. It ought to reflect your values. If it doesn't, something is wrong, right? It is a reflection, one way or the other, of the things that you prioritize the most. So what, what Wallace says is, <clears throat> we must have a clear moral message 
Budgets with billions of dollars of increases for the military and massive tax cuts for the wealthiest, while cutting funding for overcoming poverty, should be named as morally unacceptable. Two weeks ago, <clears throat> Sarah showed a video um, with Ben from Ben and Jerry's. You remember if you were here that week, that yeah. video that sort of demonstrated this in Oreo cookies? I thought about showing the whole video again, but I found this one thing that I think says the most important thing. <coughs> so if one cookie is $10 million, <clears throat> we spend 40 cookies on our military budget. And look how much we spend for education, world hunger, alternative energy, children's health care, and a head start. He says, we have this idea that we can't, it can't be fixed. And his suggestion is take those five cookies off the top and redistribute them. And you know what? We could solve many of the problems. We could solve many of the problems. Cornel West said during the Occupy movement that he, um, which was the war on poverty was real because then we would actually put money into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a nice phrase though, right? Yeah. Instead what we have is a war on the impoverished. That's the real war we have. A war on the impoverished. So, and then I remember the video saying like, we think we need this because we have to defend ourselves. Against whom? The next highest military spending is somewhere down here, and that's from one of our allies. The axis of evil, they spend like this much on their military budgets. This is industry. What was that phrase? What was that the phrase? Industrial 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 military industrial complex. That's what we're talking about here. A budget is a moral document. So I'm, I'm going to stop there for a second and just say, I know I've been focusing entirely here on poverty in the United States of America. And that's only one piece of the the issue, isn't it? Because when we start talking about global poverty, then the conversation changes very quickly. Because poverty is a global issue, and we've addressed global poverty during Bread for the World Sunday and some other Sundays. Just one thing I want, want to flag for you as you're thinking about this election cycle, I want to make sure that you remember the Millennium Development Goals. I'm just going to say just a word about that. In the year 2000, world leaders from 100 and something countries gathered in New York City at the United Nations headquarters. And they got together to address issues of global poverty. Together they came up with a list of eight goals that they wanted to pursue between the year 2000 and 2015. Did you catch that? Between the year 2000 and the year 2015. That is quickly approaching. The issues related to eradicating extreme poverty and hunger universal primary education, promoting gender equality and empowering women, reducing child mortality, improving maternal health, combating HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases, ensuring environmental sustainability, and developing a global partnership. The goal around poverty was to eliminate by half the worst extreme poverty and hunger by the year 2015. In some of these goals, we're actually doing quite well, and it, there is less extreme poverty in the world than there was 12 years ago. That is true. And in some countries, we've more than reached that eliminated by half, and we should feel good about that, although there's still the other half, right? The thing that we need to, to be thinking about 
with our elected officials is making sure that the United States continues to fulfill the promises that we made in terms of funding those eight goals. We have not always met, we have rarely, I think, actually met the promises that we made toward reaching the Millennium Development Goals. Jesus said you will have, always have the poor with you. What if we heard that not in a fatalistic, throw your hands up, there's nothing you can do about it kind of way, but instead we heard that as a marching orders. If you truly are my followers, you will always be with the poor. You will always be concerned about poverty. You will always put your priorities around the one who is suffering, because we are all sisters and brothers. Because seeing some suffering in poverty, while others hoard obscene wealth, breaks the heart of God. And because to be a follower of Jesus means that we open our hearts to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. So, let's sing together our prayer for this world. You might think about those images of the distribution of wealth and poverty, the percentage of people who live in poverty, the number of hours you have to work at a full-time job to afford an apartment. Think about those images as we sing together about a wounded world in need of healing. Mm -hmm.